0: I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Turn in Matthew's gospel to Matthew chapter five. Just two verses this morning. Verses thirty one and thirty two. I wonder if you stood up, and then you'll be sitting back down. Matthew 5, 31 and 32, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. As far as the reading of God's word, amen? Let us pray together. Gracious Father, I ask as we take up an unwanted topic in many ways, that our wants would be your wants, our thoughts would be your thoughts. I pray that you would marshal us, marshal my words, marshal my mind, marshal all of our minds, that we would think your thoughts after you, we would walk your walk. We would understand what is important, what is not, and live according. For those purposes, I ask your blessing upon the reading, preaching, hearing of the word this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's be seated. I well remember the first time I took these verses up in public. More than 25 years ago, I was a deacon in a church in Tallahassee, Florida, but I was also teaching an adult Sunday school class, part of the session's desire to figure out whether they should help me go off to seminary or not. They had me teaching adult Sunday school, I was teaching through the book of Matthew, and the class was what those kinds of classes are, there was some give and take, some Week by weeks, sometimes really good discussion, sometimes not. Sometimes people saying things that the young teacher thought, "My goodness, why, why have you said that?" I don't know what you're, <laughs> I don't know what you're saying, which happens in discussion classes. But it was pretty, pretty typical. And then the week came, and I read these verses out, and I could perceive something of a change in the atmosphere of the room. It Didn't get hostile. Nothing terrible happened, but there was definitely in the tenor of the conversation a different quality. There was a tension. Because the topic of divorce stirs and divides. It stirs people because at this point in this country, most people are touched by divorce either directly or fairly close. That is, you're either divorced yourself, or like my wife and I, we are children of divorce, both of us come from what are called broken homes, or uh, maybe one of your children is divorced, or more than one, or someone else that is close to you, the first, first wedding I was ever a part of, I was the best man in a wedding, that wedding ended in divorce, it's all around, and it's never happened, it's never happened and so that for some people it brings very raw emotions to the surface others still a sorrow of one kind or another so it stirs topic also divides because people have very strong opinions as they do when they have strong emotions and they come from different backgrounds and they may have come from different churches that have different views about divorce can there ever be a divorce for a Christian? If there can, on what grounds may there be a divorce for a Christian? If there has been a divorce, what, what, if anything, uh, pertains to that person now? Can they remarry? Should they remarry? Should they never remarry? All those things, and people have opinions, sometimes born of study, sometimes born of their own experience that they are trying to legitimize one way or another. So it divides. Uh, it does today, and it did in Jesus' day. It was a divisive topic then. Now, One thing that is particularly striking in this passage, there are a number of passages in the Bible about divorce, but one of the things that is kind of striking about this one is its brevity. I have at least one book on my shelf uh, just a whole book dedicated to the topic of divorce uh, from a biblical perspective. And I have many books that have chapters or sections, and I'm sure that there are other books besides the one I have. That is, people write books on this topic. And yet our Lord essentially addresses it in a sentence. Now, he does have something else to say later in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 19, But it's essentially an expanded version of this by way of conversation with Pharisees. He doesn't substantially uh, alter. Doesn't alter at all. He doesn't uh, substantially augment. He does. This is fairly small, narrow. I want to think about it this morning. There is a I'll tell you, you I have. I preached very long sermons about divorce. I, I read a very, very old sermon that I preached on divorce. <laughs> I got to the end of it. I thought that must have been a two-hour sermon, <laughs> ridiculously dense. There are there are lots of things that can be said. I'm not going to try to say them all this morning. I want to focus uh, on this passage in two two ways. I want to I want to divide my remarks by that which is painfully easy, and that which is wonderfully. Difficult, Painfully easy, painfully easy, and wonderfully difficult. We'll start with the painfully easy. This is the third in of six, what we call antithesis in Matthew 5. Those are those sections in which Jesus says, you've heard or it was said uh, one thing, but I say to you, that's the antithesis, the, the two ideas that are in contrast with each other. This is the third. He has uh, talked about uh, murder, and he's talked about adultery, and now he takes up divorce. And he says, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And the first obvious question is, where was this said? not said exactly like that anywhere. We write clear on what he's referring to. The Old Testament does not have a command to divorce. It does, there's, no, there's no passage in the Old Testament in which God establishes or gives divorce. There are a number of passages that assume divorce as a given practice, as a given thing. Uh, the high priest, we're, we're told the high priest may not marry a woman who is divorced. So obviously there were some around. Uh, Deuteronomy 22 says of a man who falsely accuses his bride of being unfaithful to him before they were married, that is while they were engaged. She has presented herself in one way, and he he falsely accuses her of, of, of misleading him on that point. Once it is shown that he has falsely accused her, then he must... Uh, give a compensation and other things, and he may not divorce her. So there are passages that assume the presence and the practice of divorce. The passage that is reflected here is really something of a peculiar passage. Uh, It's it's, uh, an unusual passage, Deuteronomy 24, I'm going to read it to you, it's only four verses. Uh, Deuteronomy 24 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or, if the latter husband dies, who he took her to be his wife. Then her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. Since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, it is, it is a... Uh, We'll just say an interesting passage for a number of reasons, most of which we don't need to pursue, but what you will observe is that there's actually no uh, uh, decree or ruling that you divorce. Primarily, what the passage is about is a very narrow prohibition on who you marry. Specifically this. It's a lot of ifs and then a then. If, if a man divorces his wife and if she marries another and if that guy divorces her, or if that guy dies, then the, the fellow can't remarry that woman. Uh, you can't. It's a prohibition on serial marriage to the same person. But we won't pursue that uh, passage much uh, further, uh, just a little bit here or there this morning. But the, the thing to observe in it is it does have within it a procedure, a divorce procedure, you write a thing. And it has a ground. It gives a a ground for divorce. She finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. So because it has the, the language of a procedure, that is, make a certificate, and it has a grounds, this is the text that rabbis would refer to when talking about uh, divorce. Um, this is the text that was the subject of the divorce wars of Jesus' day. By divorce wars, I mean the arguments, just like Christians now have arguments about who can and on what grounds they may divorce. So the rabbis were having similar divorces then. And the heart of the, the, the argument was, what does it mean in Deuteronomy 24, that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. What does that mean? He's found some indecency in her. It actually gets worse in the Hebrew because that sounds kind of clear. But literally, what it says in the Hebrew is he has found nakedness of a thing in her. Nakedness of a thing. You're like, well, that, uh, that's, as mud. What is the nakedness of a thing? And so what do scholars do when they're not sure what an idiom means or a phrase means or words mean? We say, well, let's go find it somewhere else. See how it's used in other contexts, and that will help us understand. And so you search all the other places where nakedness of a thing is used in the Bible, and you find one other place. And it's not about marriage at all. So there you go. It's actually, it's kind of. Kind of foul. It's about digging a latrine and burying your waste because you don't want to have something indecent in the camp of the Lord. So it doesn't really help us a lot. doesn't really help us a lot. So because human beings uh, don't miss an opportunity to have an argument over something that is obscure, and of human beings who won't miss that chance, rabbis probably are in the top. They love a debate over things that are a little bit obscure. Uh, by the time of Jesus' day, this had fallen out into essentially two different opinions as to what it meant. And they're connected with the name of two rabbis that lived at that time. I don't know if they were still actually alive, when Jesus was or not, but their names are associated with these two opinions, one was Hillel, the other was Shammai, and the, the school of Hillel said that the important part of that passage in Moses was that she had lost favor in his eyes, and therefore the ground for divorce was essentially anything that displeased the husband. Literally, she, she burned his dinner, you know? Whatever, she's lost her beauty she has lost favor in his eyes he may divorce her and the school of shammai said no uh their emphasis was on that language of indecency nakedness of a thing that is the the language of sexual sin and so they would say that the ground of divorce was marital unfaithfulness having a good time yet isn't this a great passage (laughs) Now, I told you, this is the painfully easy part. Uh, What is easy to say is that of those options, Jesus definitely does not embrace the option of Hillel, that is, anything, any ground. He uh, articulates a ground. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now he, the, the language, the, the, the word in my translation has a, is unchastity. The Greek word is porneia, which obviously isn't simply adultery because the word adultery is also used in the verse. Uh, porneia is broader, but it's not so broad as to mean anything. It doesn't encompass burnt dinners or I'm bored or something like that. Porneia is sexual sin. It is, so, uh, Jesus is saying that the ground of divorce that he recognizes is sexual sin. Or we might even say gross sexual sin. It could be adultery. It could be in some other form that somebody else could technically say wasn't adultery. But is plainly sexual sin. This is the ground. And he says, if you divorce your wife on any other ground... Uh, then you're making her commit adultery. How does that sell? Well, it's on the presumption of marriage, remarriage. That's what she's going to do, particularly in that culture. And so if I divorce my wife, who has not committed gross sexual sin, and I send her out, then I have illegitimately ended our marriage. So in a sense, though I might legally have divorced her, that is, the state recognizes it but I have not done so legitimately and I've forced her out into the world and she does what is the natural thing and marries another, then upon establishing that new marriage, there is a kind of adultery taking place because she still, she should be with me. She should be with me. So you're, you're forcing your spouse, as it were, into a violation of the seventh commandment. Painfully easy. That is, it's very easy to understand what Jesus is saying. You cannot get divorced casually, easily, on a trifle. You can't get divorced because she burned the dinner. She can't throw you out because you leave your dirty socks on the floor. You can't get divorced because you're bored or you're annoyed. It's just not as much fun as it used to be. The ground for divorce, as Jesus sees it, as an invasion into the inner sanctum of a covenant union. It's a violation of the inner sanctum, which is defined in that term of the sexual unity and, and exclusivity of marriage. It's very easy to understand. And very painful. I say it's painfully easy because we live in a land that doesn't think that way. <laughs> we live in a world of no-fault divorce. That is the stupidest phrase I've ever heard. There is no such thing as a no-fault divorce. If there's no fault, there shouldn't be a divorce. And if there's a divorce, there's fault. But we say you can just do it. Easy come, easy go. Which Jesus says, no, not easy come, not easy. There is but one ground, he says. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, we're not going to go very far down this road to say, but there's another ground, because Paul says something in 1 Corinthians 7. That's right, Paul does say, and he says at the time, that he's addressing something that Jesus did not address. Specifically, Jesus is speaking in the context of. Uh, the covenant. Uh, He's in Israel. He's amongst Jews. So these are the people that he's speaking to are all what we would call professed believers. They are all professing believers in God. And he's saying amongst them there can be no divorce without the ground of a violation of the union of the husband and wife. Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, a situation that arises as the faith goes out into the world. What happens when a believer and an unbeliever are married to each other? It's a thing that shouldn't be, but is. And it can happen any number of ways. One Christian abandons the faith after they're married, or one, two, two unbelievers uh, are married and one of them converts. Or, most foolish of all, there are Christians who have foolishly married unbelievers. They shouldn't have, but they did. And Paul addresses that question, and he provides a second narrow ground for that context, which is that if a, a Christian and a non-Christian are married, and the non-christian says i'm not staying i'm leaving then if they abandon if the unbeliever abandons the marriage then paul says the christian is then free to remarry if if the uh, non-christian is willing to stay married then stay married but if they abandon you then you're free but that's not our focus this morning our focus is what is plain what is easy to understand there are not lots of reasons for divorce. That's painfully easy. Now, I want us to think about what is wonderfully difficult. <laughs> difficult. You say, well, surely that's the difficult part. No divorce except for immorality. If I divorce my wife wrongly or my husband wrongly, causing adultery, surely that's the, the difficult part. Now, that's just difficult here. It's just difficult to hear. It's not difficult to understand. That's, that's very plain. Think about the direction of the Sermon on the Mount. Think about the direction particularly in these six antitheses. Six antitheses. It, you know, they begin with the language of you have heard that the ancients were told, verse 21, or you have heard that it was said, verse 27, or here it was said, or again you have heard, or you have heard that it was said in verse 38, verse 43. He, he, he gives these things that you know. These are things that you know. These are things that you've heard. And the things that he then supplies is what you have heard or what we're told or what you've heard was said. They're quotes out of the Bible, almost all of them. They're either direct quotes like... Uh, Sixth commandment or the seventh commandment? Are there close allusions like this to Deuteronomy 4 or some other passage in the law, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, about vows or the like? He's saying, You're, You've been taught, you've heard, you've read, but I say to you something different. The difference isn't in the surface, it's underneath. You need to think more deeply about these things that you think you already know. He's not challenging the veracity of the words. He's not overturning the sixth commandment or the seventh commandment or the like. But he's saying, do you really understand these things? Do you think that the law against murder is just about taking another person's life? And do you think the law against adultery is just about taking another person's wife? Is that what you think? That if there's not a dead body on the floor or a warm body in the bed that shouldn't be, then we're good to go with the law? No, 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 no. You need to think more deeply about this. Much more deeply. So now he's speaking about divorce. You need to think more deeply. We, We can draw the lines of what what is acceptable and unacceptable? That's why there are books and articles about divorce. We can articulate the what we call the biblical grounds of divorce. We can so you could you could have a section in your article about uh, the ground of unchastity or immorality. You explore the meaning of the word hornea and the like, and then you could have a section in there about the abandonment of marriage by the unbeliever and how that is a ground for divorce. And then you could probably have some sections about the thorny, difficult questions that then uh, arise. You, uh, you know, what about abuse? Uh, what about physical abuse? What about uh, psychological abuse? What about pornography? Is that is that a case of unchastity? What about a psychological abandonment? You could have all those sections where you're trying to get into the very difficult and thorny issues Where is the ground for divorce? And you could try to cover all the cases. And you could still miss the greater point. The greater point. In chapter 19, this uh, question is put to Jesus. Matthew 19, verse three: Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all. That's the Hillel position. They don't really care what Jesus thinks. You'll notice they came. It's what we call a wedge issue. You know, you do it to a politician. You you, you try to, to nail down a politician on a thorny public issue. You know, Republicans are often asked about uh, at, you know, abortion bans, would it be six weeks, 15 weeks, conception? Uh, Democrats are asked uh, questions about uh, asylum at the border and all that. You're very often you're just trying to get the politician on the record on a position that is going to hurt them in the polls. And when the question is put to Jesus... Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Are you with the camp of Hillel? Or are you a camp with Shammai? It's a, it's a wedge issue. It's a way to discredit him. It's, a, it's the, like when they ask him about paying taxes to Caesar. They don't care about Caesar or taxes. They care about putting Jesus on the hot seat. But nonetheless, the question is put to him. You know, the problem with asking a clever person a trick question, is they're more clever than you, might not work out so well. Jesus doesn't answer by turning to either Hillel or Sheman. He doesn't answer by turning to Deuteronomy 24. He answers with a question of his own. Have you not read? He asks them, Matthew 194, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He asks the Pharisees if they've read the first chapters of the Bible. A bit of a dig. I'm sure that they could recite I wouldn't be surprised if a number of them could recite most, if not all, of the book of Genesis. Just tell him the whole thing. Have you not read? Of course they've read. Is it a foolish question? No, it's a great question. It's a question that fits exactly with the same tenor and tone of the antithesis in the Sermon on the Mount. You think you know these things. Because you know them on the surface. You, you're you familiar with the words. You can quote the words so you think you know these things. But have you thought about them? Have you thought about them? Murder is not just about a body on the floor. Have you thought about what God desires? What is marriage? What is it about when God gave marriage? Have you not read, he asked, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. If the, the law against murder is, is not just about taking somebody's life. It's about your heart and disposition to the other. You're not even supposed to hate them. You're not supposed to dislike them. The law against adultery is not simply about violating your marriage or somebody else's marriage. And the gift of marriage in Genesis 2 is certainly not about, now tell me exactly how I can get out of this arrangement. What are the the grounds? As we think about marriage, should should we be thinking about how does it end? That is to miss the point. I, I was uh, reading uh, in a commentary by John Stott. and I thought, well said. I mean, I didn't, I didn't write it down, but the, the gist of what he said was to this effect. That when, when a, a Christian comes to him and says they want him to tell them about divorce, he doesn't. He tells them about marriage. And there is there is a rightness in that perspective. What is wonderfully difficult is the gift of marriage. The two shall become one flesh. The two do not enter into a mutually beneficial arrangement. The two do not become friends with benefits. The two do not become partners. They become one flesh. That's the language from Genesis into the Gospels, into the, uh, the Epistles, the two shall become one flesh. The obvious initial reference to that expression is the complementary anatomy of men and women. I'm trying to be as delicate as I can. That's the obvious initial reference is to the complementary anatomy. But it's not just about complementary anatomy, though that is fundamental because we don't use this language to describe what animals do. No cattle breeder is saying the, the bull and the cow, oh, it's a union of one flesh. We don't, we don't think of it that way. That's the starting point, that's the visceral point. But it's more. Let me just to say as an aside, and I will keep myself as tight as I can, this is this is why the The whole idea of gay marriage is a non-starter. You cannot have it. It is not a marriage. you, You can use some other language, but you cannot use that language. That is like saying it's dry water. It's a teeny tiny giant. It makes no sense. At the heart of marriage is hetero, heteros, the Greek word meaning other and different. As opposed to homo, which means same, you cannot have a marriage without the hetero. It's fundamental to the thing. And if we didn't get it from the anatomy, we get it from the thing that flows from the anatomy—the commonest miracle of our existence, which is children. That you just pause and consider. It is only that kind of a union that produces the most stunning thing that we ever produce, which is another image bearer of God. You can do anything you want with language. You can do anything you want with your laws. You can do anything you want with your bodies, but there is only one union that God blesses with life, And you can form that union without marriage, but you ought not. Paul says that you can go to a prostitute and become one body interesting that he doesn't use the language of one flesh, but one body. And you might produce a life that way because you've you've done a corrupted form of the gift of marriage. So as you're hearing all that talk out in the world and somebody's insisting that you call other unions marriage, you have sound reason for rejecting that language. Anyway, the anatomy is a start it's just a start the union of one flesh the husband wife union is the most important human relationship there is that is our 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 relation to god is the most important relationship but what is he like it to a bride and a bridegroom but of human relationships there is no other relationship like marriage it is the the one relationship that should have primacy over all others. It's very striking to me that it is called the one-flesh relationship. You know what's not called the one-flesh relationship? The, the, the relationship that you might think should be called the one-flesh relationship. The, the parent-child, the mother-child. I mean, just biologically speaking, if you were going to pick one relationship and say, which one would, would get that title? one flesh? I mean, we are built in our mothers. We are nour- nourished and nurtured and, and constructed inside of our mothers drawing all that we get, their nutrition, all that's from her. And yet not only is that not called the one flesh relationship, we are told you will leave your father and mother and cling, cleave to your wife or your husband. This relationship this relationship has primacy and a mystery about me. That's the language of Paul, Ephesians 5. If you're going to understand Deuteronomy 24, then you've got to understand Genesis 2. If you're going to be thinking about writing a certificate of divorce. What is it that you're breaking? What is it that you're suffering? You're not just changing a dress. You're not just doing paperwork. You're not just terminating a contract. You're severing flesh. A union. Now, Jesus has made it plain. Moses indicated, Paul indicates. There are grounds. It can happen. But it is no trifle. It is nothing that we ought to enter easily into. The most profound of human relationships, if we're going to end it, we must have a profound reason. It can happen. It cannot. Deuteronomy 24, there's grounds for divorce. In Matthew 5, there's grounds for divorce. In Matthew 19, there's grounds for divorce. In 1 Corinthians 7, there are grounds for divorce. But in none of those passages, in none of those passages, is a command to divorce? It's never required. It's never required. No one should seek, well, let me just quote our Lord, Matthew 19, 6. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. No one should seek to separate a husband and wife from without the marriage. That is, no one should be trying to get their crowbar into somebody else's marriage and break it up. And nobody inside a marriage should be trying to bust out that is not what we were created for. That's not what marriage was given for. It can happen. But we ought to be fighting and thinking and focusing about how to prevent it. We ought not be giving our spouses grounds. We ought not be providing them a reason. reason. We, we ought not either be giving them the grounds by which they can divorce us are giving them grounds that they wish that there were grounds that they could divorce us. We ought not be doing those things. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes the grounds are there. If the grounds are there, the ideal is that we don't exercise them. That we forgive. That we repent of our sin and that we forgive. And we continue. Some can't. Some can't. It's a fallen world. Some people are in different places than others. If there are grounds, then you can. But the ideal is that we don't. As you contemplate the question of marriage and divorce, you should remember who you are. Christian. We are the bride of Christ. But what kind of bride are we? We're a bride who has an indecency, a nakedness of a thing about us. We have given our Lord grounds for divorce. Again, and again, and again. We are a bride with Pornea. But he has forgiven. If you think about marriage and divorce, you can think about the documents, the wedding license, the divorce papers. But you need to look up to our Lord. We look at his bride that I will make it clear. I will forbear. That's how we ought to think about that. Not how do we get out. How did we get in? How can we stand? It's by the grace of our prayer. Amen? Let's pray together. Pray to mighty God. are so, not my favorite parts of the Bible, but I trust that you have purpose for us in these things. Father, I know that such a sermon as this I have wondered if we should set our Sunday School aside and take up sermon discussion today, because such a sermon often, often, often produces questions, wrestlings, doubts, puzzles, recriminations, pray, Father, for any that are wrestling with those things, that you would give to them wisdom to live as they ought live today. If there are things in the past that can be fixed, that they would be fixed. If there are things in the past that cannot be undone, that they would trust your grace for that. If there are sorrows of the present and of the future, that you would give them strength to bear them and go forward. Help us to live. Not simply looking at the black and white, the particulars, the regulations, but let us live as we ought, as true Christians, transformed, seeking to look beyond what merely is required, look beyond what is permitted or forbidden, that we would set our eyes upon you say not my will but thy will be done transform me and transform my marriage and transform my home transform my language and my walk transform how i live in this world that your grace your grace would be evident and attractive we ask it in christ's name